Welcome to Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I'm your host, Nastasha Ali. Today I want to talk about what drives my desire to learn as much as I can about the history, traditions, and culture of the food from my homeland, the Philippines. This episode is about how to fall in love with Filipino food. What always interests me are the stories that people share about themselves when they're cooking or sitting down to share a meal with someone. If you've got a keen eye and an open mind, you can learn a lot about life from these folks, and that's really rewarding to me. That allows stories about Filipino food to open themselves up like a glistening oyster. Like they're saying, welcome to the party, come on in. You get to enjoy an incredibly delicious, flavor-first cuisine with textures and flavors that run the spectrum. This kind of stuff sticks with me, and it's caused me to fall deeper and deeper in love with it. Here's how that happened for me. Step 1. Uncover the romance. This obsession started with Doreen Fernandez. Doreen wrote about Filipino food in ways more eloquent and lyrical than I'd ever read before. She wrote about Filipinos and their economy with food, making street fare like grilled chicken innards on a stick and soups made with potatoes, cabbage, and marrow-filled beef bones that are cooked low and slow for hours. Doreen wrote about regional Philippine delicacies like pancit, a type of dry noodle dish, and how cooks use the ingredients that grew around them to make this borrowed Chinese noodle truly their own. Like how folks from the seaside town of Malabon took their bounty of mackerel and smoked them to make tinapa, the smoked fish, a topping that's so iconic to that town's pancit, you just can't have pancit Malabon without tinapa. Or how folks from the farmlands of Lukban realized that banana leaves were nature's perfect takeout container. They'd rip leaves from a banana tree, cut them into large squares, and then fold them over like a pocket square, and then top that with a mound of noodles and vegetables. And I remember that from when I was a lot younger. We would go to Kazon, where my dad had a business at the time, and there was this restaurant called Buddy's Pancit, whose specialty was this type of a noodle dish with the banana leaves on them. And it was so much fun, just like walking around town with this little mound of steaming noodles on a banana leaf. Every time I read an essay about Doreen, I was rewarded with learning about the culture and the traditions that I too quickly left behind. Her words made an impact because they got to me in a way that I didn't even know essays about food can make you feel. I felt euphoria and heartache and longing, often a sense of pride and joy too. And I reveled in those lands that Doreen took me to. Like my favorite story uh, about a seafood that's cooked in acid, much like ceviche, called kinilao. This is a story that Doreen wrote called Kinilao Artistry in Old Sagai. Sagai Negros Occidental seemed hours and eons away when I first visited friends there in the 50s. Now it's only two hours away from Bacolod on good roads, and my friends, the Maranyons, just as dear and kind. I wanted to talk to fishermen and ask them about Kinilo. So at six in the morning, they took my sister Della and me to a town called Old Sagai. New Sagai has the town center and the businesses being close to the highway. Old Sagai had the fishermen. Right there on the shore, Felipe and Juanita have their home and their business. 
with three boats, some 2,000 meters of fishnet, and large caches that buyers came in for. Felipe had spent 18 years working in a rural bank, and then decided to set out on his own. Juanita works alongside him and makes quinilao, soured not only with vinegar, but sometimes with Indian mango, and flavored not only with ginger, onions, and chili, but sometimes with salted eggs and mayonnaise. We boarded the radio-equipped pump boat. It was large, clean, and white-painted, Wilberto at the controls, Lorenzo as adjutant, and Ntang as chief. That's Ntang Lobaton. Off we went into the calm, seemingly endless sea. But because there had been no fish at Old Sagai, we stopped, and it seemed miraculous how we did that, parked in sea lanes invisible to landlubbers. At a tiny fishing village called Suyak, there we found fishermen who had just returned with catches, having set out in the wee hours that morning with 150 pesos worth of crabs and fish, enough to feed us six times over. Inteng immediately started preparations in the small triangular space at the stern of the boat. Inteng Lobaton is a master quinielo artist, as well as a careful and intelligent craftsman who knows exactly what he's doing and why. For every six fish, there's a different quinielo, he declared. The squid he'd chosen, about six to seven inches in length, was just the right size for quinielo, Anything larger would be a bit tougher. This he washed first in seawater, because that far out, the water was clean and clear, without a hint of pollution. Slit on one side to remove the spines, the eyes, the ink, and the innards, then sliced in even strips, and tossed into a basin of salted water, the first step to flavoring. The large live crabs strolling about his feet, he continued to sort. The liveliest were for Kinilao. The rest went into a well-worn palayok, a clay pot, to be steamed over wood, split right on the boat, and some coals. The bulao, a type of seafood, Intang scaled and cleaned and filleted off the backbone. The heads and the roe were set aside for tinala, a stew, and the flesh was sliced skin on. Why, I asked in wonder, are different sea creatures made into different types of quinilao? Well, squid, he explained, toughens when it's marinated in vinegar, and so it's only dipped. Some fish, like bangus, which is milkfish, and tangige, cook too fast in pure vinegar, and so salted eggs can be crushed into the vinegar to temper the sourness, or sugar can also be added. Coconut milk, which absorbs some sourness as well, can be added to bangus and tangige, both firm-fleshed fishes. Live fish don't even need vinegar, and so fishermen on the sea strip them off the bone and dip them in the seawater right away, to savor the translucent sweetness of a freshly caught fish. And so for breakfast on that lovely morning, we had bulao, which Tang first mixed with chopped ginger and sliced spring onions, and then briefly with vinegar. Sliced tomatoes were laid on top, adding another bit of sourness. But our peak experience was crab kinilo. Open, split, and still quivering. The gristle removed such that each leg was a stem with a flower of soft white flesh at the end that we dipped into a sosawan of vinegar, which Ntang had shaken a few seeds of a chili. It was absolute heaven. How, I wondered, do other mortals fare never having known this?
Everything was done with an economy of motion and a wordless wisdom. Organic matter thrown back into the sea, man-made waste into a bag. Kinilao, of course, is fruit of pristine nature, healthy because of it. It came about because the seagoing Filipino knew the value of freshness and of food being left to taste as it was meant to, untampered. An ethos of freshness, a kinship with the environment, has led to one of the best and truest foods of our culture. And with that, I was hooked on food in the Philippines. Falling in love with Filipino food. Step 2. Given to jealousy, the good kind. I was so jealous of the foods that people later wrote about in a book called Savor the Word, a collection of essays from 10 years of the Doreen Fernandez Food Writing Award. These writers told stories about food in the Philippines in crazy lively, descriptive ways, like you can just taste what they're eating at the tip of your tongue. It kind of just goes to show the power that Doreen had in inspiring other people to think about food in a different way. So I read about these stories at a time when I questioned myself and my capabilities a lot. I wasn't sure what direction my life was going in, and I wondered why other people seemed to be in a much better place than I was a lot of the time. Internally, I argued the value of getting a post-secondary education in North America, where I'm now riddled with student debt, in an economy where virtually no jobs are guaranteed. And like, trust me, I was out of work for a while. It was just tough because I felt like I was downtrodden and I knew my family moved to Canada to open up these doors for us. So I wondered what I could do to pull myself up and work as hard as my parents did and as many immigrant families do. And so flipping through this book, I kept reading about these stories that people wrote, people who could tell lush, intricate tales about food, and therein I found a real sense of solace and comfort. People wrote about the pleasure of eating mangoes that were cooled in slow-moving streams, and they brought me right into the crowds with them of the Pahias Festival, where rice-based dishes were offered up with the biggest smiles to everyone who passed by. There was one story of uh, this church that a lot of people made a pilgrimage towards. Apart from the church, the other thing about Antipolo was cashews. And reading this story took me right back outside that church where there were easily about 10 or more hawkers with these little paper bags full of freshly roasted cashews. They were salty, freshly roasted. Ah, oh, it was fantastic. And frankly, they put all of their nuts to shame. In a story about sharing breakfast with her family in Surigao, one writer brought me right there with her at the table, and I savored every bit of a big Filipino breakfast, despite being oceans away. There was milk bread, and coconut jam, and hot chocolate, and garlic fried rice, and paxio, which is a ginger and pepper-laced stew of freshwater fish and vegetables. There are so many stories in this book about everyday life and how food plays such an important part in how we relate to others and how we establish our relationships with other people. 
one writer wrote of the sadness in losing a loved one and trying to fill the spaces they occupied with bowls of fermented rice pudding, which is called binuburan. And all of these stories just over time like embedded themselves in my mind because they were so richly described visually through the words that were printed on a page. They were the kinds of experiences I really longed for. And with that, I had to go back. Falling in love with Filipino food, step three, put yourself out there. So what do I do? I plan a trip to the Philippines. I got on a plane in Toronto and found myself 26 hours later, further south of the equator than I'd ever been. I had a list of dishes that I wanted to try and ingredients that I wanted to taste in the province of Mindanao. Once I got there, I made friends with a chef who burnt mushrooms until they smelled and looked like firewood, but tasted like the charred crispy bits of a pot roast. I sought out a dish of grilled pork belly and tuna that was dressed with a citrus and a hardwood fruit available only in that region, the suwa and the tabun tabun fruit. I visited farms where they grew coffee and chocolate, and I ate durian fruit for days. I kind of remember having durian candy when I was little, but I don't remember ever having had fresh durian. So when I got to Davao City, I hooked up with Mel of Mel's Food Tours, and she took me around town to where the durian shops were. So durian, so that's not overly sweet. So at this point, I'm struggling for words to describe this fruit. It's like slightly sour and savory, and I use the Tagalog word malinam now. The texture of this fruit just belies the tastiness of that thick, creamy durian pulp that surrounds this big seed. It's hard to describe. Durian otap, durian candy, durian ice cream, ice candy. And that's a lot of different kinds of durian. That is a very unique experience. And you can't compare it to a different kind of fruit. Like, they're specialties for a reason. They they may say that you can't go to Davao without eating durian. You can't have fresh durian any place else and have it the same quality, the same ripeness, the same freshness. It is, a, it is the specialty of a place because that's where it's grown. That's where you can best enjoy it. And I remember my guide, Mel, just like being really amused with me because I kept trying to figure out ways of describing this thing, but I couldn't come up with the right words. It was, the texture was kind of soft, its taste was complex and kind of smoky, but also fruity at the same time, and it definitely did not taste anything like it smelled like. Uniquely Davao experience. <laughs> And while I was there, I shared meals with some really interesting people. Some cattle ranchers had dinner with a couple of farmhands where we had the simply braised fish. First was roasted over coals and then lowered into a simmering broth of garlic, ginger, some peppercorns, and the wild growing weed. It kind of looked like dandelions. Parang, parang celery. Parang celery. That's me and Henry Benahon, one of my favorite people in the world. I want to visit Henry at his farm in Bukidnon that specialized in agroforestry. 
and I learned so much about nature and the ecology of things just by spending a couple of days at the farm. I shared a meal with some adventure guides who I went whitewater rafting with. I spent a night in a monastery and had breakfast the next day with a group of 50 or so people who were there for a retreat. This place is beautiful. I'm at the Monastery of Transfiguration in Malay Balai Bukidnon. You wake up at 5.30, 6 in the morning, step outside from the Pax Guest House and make your way over to the main structure of the monastery. And then wind your way down past the hedges over to where the coffee trees are. You can kind of see them poking in through the hedges. Walk down a little bit along the ridge and you're surprised at this wonderful, beautiful view of the mountains. For breakfast at the local market, I try something called putomaya, which is a type of kakanin. That's a rice delicacy. So sugar, salt, ginger, Kakanin are typical breakfast items. Filipinos have very clever, tasty ways of preparing rice. This kind, flavored with coconut cream or gata, first press is the best, is left to cook for at least an hour. The lady I spoke to said she goes through a whole sack of sticky rice every morning to make her putomaya. At the Bangkarohan Public Market in Davao City, Mel and I go visit the fermented food stall. There were fermented fish, beans, shrimp, mussels, all kinds of funky fermented pastes and sauces out in the open air of the market displayed neatly in three staircase-like rows of brightly colored plastic pails. I wanted to try everything, even the ones that looked like an unpalatable goo. People have been eating this stuff for ages, and there must be a reason why. In the city of Golden Friendship, Cagayan de Oro, I met people from the local hotel and restaurant association who welcomed me and sent me off to places where I was greeted with the unbeatable hospitality that Filipinos are so known for. At Cagayanon restaurant, I had this kind of seaweed called lato. They kind of look like little sea grapes. First time trying lato. I have been waiting for uh, about four or five years to try this. I uh, never had the chance to try this in Manila, so I'm really excited to have it now. Let's go. So lato, hunting sao That's a little dip in some spiced coconut vinegar. Mmm. <laughs> That's Russell, the restaurant's manager, and my guide, Tita Noli. Considering I just met them, they didn't hesitate to share stories about local food culture, what Balikbayans looked for when they came into the restaurant, and how the availability of ingredients, especially seafood, has changed over time. It just fascinated me to see how much we all had in common when we sat down to eat. Any lines of social class or ethnicity or apprehension seem to kind of melt away in the presence of sharing food and good company and exchanging these stories about my life and their life and often about the food. And so slowly, like perhaps as I descended the peak of the mountain that I just climbed, like literally an actual mountain.
I guess that's when I kind of realized that there was nothing more I wanted to do than to keep telling these stories about food and the people that surround them and how it shapes ourselves and the communities we live in, regardless of where we are in the world. Falling in love with Filipino food. Step four, indulge in your desires. So to me, it's easy to dream of the life you want to live. You want to have that sweet place downtown where you can walk your bike to work and have this nice view of the city, be in a great neighborhood. Or maybe you want to save up every paycheck so you can jet off and wander through Europe doing a bunch of regional beer tours across Germany or Switzerland. Those are my dreams anyway, but everyone's got something that drives them. Some kind of journey that they want to take. Desire is defined in the dictionary as an unsatisfied longing or craving. And to me, coming into contact with Filipino food triggers that current of desire like a jolt of electricity right through me, through all of my senses. Like when I enter a room with a spit-roasted pig on the table, that's the classic lechon, my eyes immediately turn to the roast's caramel-smooth complexion. It's gotta have it. It's like looking at a great painting that you need to stop and appreciate. And then I breathe in the scent of a pig that's been roasted over coals for 12 hours, mixed with whiffs of charred bamboo that's at either end of our dear friend. When someone finally takes a cleaver to hack the lechon's skin, I get close to it and pick up a piece. Then I take a bite. A well-done lechon has one layer of fat that shatters when your jaw clamps down to chew and then another layer of fat that kind of just melts into the roof and the crevices of your mouth and coats everything in this delicious, slow-roasted goodness. The meat is like perfectly succulent. I can dip the next piece of lechon into a chunky liver sauce, or maybe into a condiment of soy sauce, shallots, chilies, and vinegar. I can't help but be aroused by this kind of food. To take another word from Doreen, Philippine cuisine began as other cuisines do, she says, with the weather, the seasons, the sources, and the particularity of place. From the food of the islands and the waters come the cooking processes, the steaming, boiling, stewing, roasting, that local knowledge saw as natural and logical for food that was so proximate, so abundant, and incredibly fresh. From these ingredients and cooking processes came dishes that vary per cook, per town, per region, but have many similarities because they grow from the same landscape and the same seascape. That constitutes the country's cuisine. And so really, you can't ask for a better reason to indulge in Filipino food. Theme music for this episode is by David Seste, Eric and McGill, Blue Dot Sessions, Gillicuddy, and Squire Tuck. Thanks to Jacqueline and everyone at her Birds of a Feather writing workshop for helping shape the script for this episode. And my sincerest thanks to you, dear listeners, for spending half an hour with me. I'll see you soon.